You're listening to the Binge Media Podcast Network on BingeMedia.net. And now, the Binge Aftertaste. So you're a woman now. And God made Eve from the rib of Adam. And what, Karen? Say it. Oh, Mom. Say it. Talk to me. Say it. Please, just talk and to Eve me. And Eve was weak. Just, just talk to and me, the please. First I just, sin I just want you to talk to me. Was the sin of intercourse. And the first sin was the sin of intercourse, Mama. Say it. Why didn't you just? Why didn't you tell me, Mama? And Mama, God please. It, with a it curse, hurts. And the curse was a curse of blood. I'm not gonna say that. That's not even in the Bible. It doesn't oh, say that Lord. anywhere. Help this little girl see the sin of her days and ways. Show her she'd made innocent. The curse of blood would not have come upon her as it did upon Eve. I'm not Eve, Mama. I didn't sin. You showered with those other girls. You had lust-filled thoughts. Everyone has to shower, Mama. Everyone. No, That's no, just the rules. You must be different because he can see I don't see want you. to be different, Mama. I want to he be like them. I want to be just like them. You will punish you. <gasps> I will not let that come down upon you. Welcome to the Binge Movie Aftertaste Carrie Retrospective Series. You have a big week coming up. A big month, actually. Probably the biggest month of your lives. Join Garrett. I have a dog. Matt. Turn around, drop the trail. And Adam. Do they have anything good? Like some garbage? You like garbage? Oh yeah, Shirley Manson, she rocks. As they look at the four different iterations of Stephen King's very first published novel. This isn't over by a long shot. Come back periodically as one by one the boys go through each film adaptation of the popular author's work in the order of its original publication. That's great news! Where does everyone come down on the quality of King's work? They're just gonna trick me again. Why is Adam watching Carrie for the very first time? I don't want to upset you. And what is Matt dreading the most about this 100-plus movie retrospective. <laughs> Look at this! What? <laughs> All these pigs! Find out the answers to these questions and many more, all coming up courtesy of Binge Media. And things are going to change around here. Carrie, released November 3rd, 1976. Budget on this was $1.8 million. Box office, $33.8 million and this is directed by somebody Matt has been wanting to talk about for years, Brian De Palma. Here we are, boys. We are doing Stephen King. I am so fucking excited to do Stephen King. I am joined on this big journey, which we'll talk about how it started, what, how, why we decided to do this epic journey. But first, let me talk about the people who would be taking this journey with me. First, my... Esteemed colleague, the one who I can rely on for anything, the one and only Matthew Goudreau. What's up, Matt? To quote the author himself, I'm going to scare the hell out of you. There we go. Save it. Save it for two years down the line. <laughs> and speaking of people I can rely on, a guy I've been able to rely on since pretty much childhood, even though it was high school when we started hanging out, the one and only Adam Bunch. What's up, Adam? Hey, everybody. I want to make it clear, when we're starting this journey, I have a full head of hair. I don't need glasses or a cane, but we'll see how that is by the time we're through. 
Matt made a point in our year-end show, if you go back and listen to it, where we kind of teased that this, because we had this in mind for years. When we finally cleared it, you know, Alex went ahead and gave the go-ahead for us to do it. Matt said, we should probably sign a prenup before we start this <laughs> retrospective. <laughs> yeah, this was the one he was talking about. Stephen King, I am a massive Stephen King fan. And why was this the thing we decided to do? Well, go back and listen to the shows from a few years ago. Matt and I, he has the same mentality as me where if we're going to do something, we're going to do all of it. So we had in mind we were going to do Marvel. We were going to do Fantastic Four. We had already done X-Men. That was the first step. And we are going to do every single Marvel property, going back to The Incredible Hulk, Bill Bixby, TV movies, everything leading up to the Marvel movies proper and cultivating in a review of whatever Marvel movie was coming out at that time. Flash forward, Jack decides to take the format and do that particular show and do like a three and a half hour version of it, which by the way, it was a great show, don't get me wrong, but it kind of took the window of our sales. And so Matt and I were like, what can we build upon? Because I love doing retrospectives. I love doing the two, three, four movie retrospective. Hell, we just did Fast and Furious. That's 10 fucking movies. I love building to something, but there's nothing that I've done where I have been able to build to something and just keep it going for a set of years at a time. Me and Matt brainstormed, and this was the main thing that came up, and this was what we decided to do. This is something I've been wanting to do for a long time. I am a massive Stephen King reader, have been since childhood. I have an article on the site. Go back and read it. There was a book on my dad's nightstand. I looked. It had the letters C-U-J-O on there, and it looked very scary. And at that time, I was kind of starting to get into a little bit of scary stuff. I'd seen Michael Jackson's Thriller and was deeply like, I was like, whoa, I, I really like this stuff. So I picked this up. And as a 10, 11 year old, I read Cujo. That was the very first Stephen King book I'd ever re read and fell in love with it and consumed. Even back then, I consumed every single piece of media on somebody when I got a hold of it. It was part of my life. Stephen King has been a part of my life since. I have an aunt who every single year sends me for Christmas the new Stephen King novel. I have most, probably not all, but I'm probably about five books short of having his entire collection. I still don't miss a beat when it comes to his stuff. I am the massive fan of this retrospective. Matt, where do you come from when it comes to Stephen King? Like you, I'm also a huge fan, but everyone seems to have a different entry point. For me, it was not the books. It was, and this is showing my age. I was stupid enough to watch the TV miniseries of It when I was considerably younger than I should have. <laughs> and that was something that, to say, fucked me up is an understatement. I don't have a fear of clowns in the way that I do ventriloquist dummies. It was more sewer drains. Every time I see a sewer drain, oh. I walk into the school bus or anything like that, all I would see is fucking Tim Curry, just that pop of white and then those, those beady little eyes and that thick New York accent that that interdimensional beast had. But once I got older and realized, recontextualized what that was, and learning something like Shawshank Redemption was based on Stephen King, and realizing this guy did not exclusively do horror. That's kind of how I was introduced to him as a writer. And once I got to, like, middle school, high school, we had to read different seasons at one point. So that's, you know, Shawshank, Stand By Me, At Pupil. All those have been made into movies. So I didn't read everything in order. I've jumped around my whole life. Same thing with the adaptations. Like, I, I kind of, I started by cherry-picking, like, the famous ones. Like, oh, you got to watch The Shining. you got to watch Misery. You know, the really notable ones that everyone talks about. And then I've discovered some of my favorite pieces of his, or some of the more niche stuff, which I hope to talk about in the years to come, probably when I have a 10-year-old by that point. 
<laughs> but but yeah, and, and what's great about King is just the guy. He's just fun to listen to. You know, he's always got great stories. He's very open about his struggles. He doesn't hide from his failures. I, I think there's something very amicable. You know, he is the so it's very humble when he talks about how people view him as one of the greatest writers of all time. He's very quick to say like, while I'm flattered here are some people who really should be put in that. So he understands his place, and he also understands the craft of writing as a whole, and that it's, you know, it's a self-improving process. And I think he writes just because it's almost like a compulsion he has to at this point. I'm jealous of the fact that how quickly he can turn out a book. Meanwhile, back when I was in high school, I had to stare at my laptop and beat my head just to type a paragraph. Yeah, he's a fun Twitter follow, too. If anybody out there is on Twitter, go follow him. I get the notifications of every single tweet he gets because they always they always make me laugh. All right, let's get the pessimism in. Uh, <laughs> we, uh, <laughs> I want to turn this over to a gentleman who probably, every time he'd see me in high school, I probably had one of these books in my hand as we were walking to and from class. When he came over, I was probably reading one of his books. Adam. You had teased when we were talking on the very first Hobbit podcast we did. There might be some fighting on these podcasts. What kind of a fan, if any, are you of Stephen King? And why do you agree to do this retrospective if you're not? <laughs> I've heard of the guy. No. Um, <laughs> he, um, I don't know, I think kind of somewhere along the line of a James Bond, I think after three, four, or five people probably turned it down, you didn't have much of a choice. <laughs> let me see. We started with, let me see, we did 10. We did a retro of 10 that went to 12. And you guys upped it with 25, 26. So I couldn't say no when it came to this. I know Stephen King's works. I'm not a horror reader, just naturally. And not that I have anything against it, just not my bag. Not my bag of bones. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah, I knew that one. But I know I know some of his work. In fact, I think the only books of Stephen King that I've read is The Green Mile, which I bought in their original small novella formats. I still have all of those. And The Dark Tower, which I started reading as a graphic novel. I don't think I've read a single other Stephen King book. My wife, on the other hand, has read quite a few, has quite a few. Movie-wise, I grew up with my father watching some around the house, Firestarter, probably the one that I remember kind of always playing in my house. And then growing up, there were certain ones that I saw that turned me off. Like I paid to watch Sleepwalkers in a movie theater. I paid to watch Sleepwalkers in a movie theater. Stephen King owes me that money back. <laughs> I can't wait to get to that because I unapologetically love that movie. But we'll, that's going to be one of the fights years down the line. <laughs> You know, but but flip side, a couple years later, me and one of the people on this podcast, not Matt, because he was, I don't want to guess what his age was at that time, but I think Garrett and I, I believe we saw Thinner together in a movie theater when yes, it came did. out. Um, we did. Yeah. I was so I'm such a big King fan as far as the production history goes. I can tell you what year the movies came out. <laughs> so as much as I know a lot of his work never because I never followed him directly. I never felt the need to specifically follow his movies, follow his books. And because I knew people who championed them so hard, I was going to be the dick and be like, nah, fuck that guy. <laughs> hey, Adam, you want to watch the shiny? Nah, fuck that movie. Have you ever seen it? Nah, but I'm sure it sucks. <laughs> you know, I was that guy when I was 15, 16. King who? You're, Some you're of that it guy I've come in the 40s, by the way. <laughs> 
I'm surprised you never come around. To, I'm surprised you never tried to beat him to death with one of those Bible-sized books. You, were <laughs> you know what? If we didn't separate as friends when we did, I probably would have eventually. <laughs> when we get to The Shining, I'll tell you what I think set Garrett off when I compared The Shining and another version of The Shining. Yes, um, yes. You know, I'm looking forward, especially on some of the ones that I didn't care for necessarily when I was younger to going through them older, more mature, looking at themes differently because the themes that I see now, I wouldn't have even cared about trying to see when I was younger. It wasn't what I would have looked for in a horror movie. And I find Stephen King at least attempts to bring more than just a slasher. He's not a slasher writer or slasher director or sorry, not director. Well, directed one. Um, Yeah. Yeah. But but I don't think that's what he's going for. So I'm really intrigued to kind of delve down this road and go through some of these, the good, the bad, and the very ugly. Yeah. Lord knows we'll have some of those. And what needs to be said, the way we're doing this retrospective, we're not going to do it in the order that the movies are released. We're going to be doing it in order that the books were published. So we're going to be doing this movie, Carrie. We're going to be doing the Rage Carrie 2. We're going to do the TV remake from 2002. And then we're going to do the 2013 remake. So we have it set that if we do the book, we got to do the movies connected to it, which means come next year when we do the goddamn night shift, we're going to be here all fucking year almost because there are – Lord knows there are ten fucking Children of the Corn movies. We have two versions of Maximum Overdrive, two Lawnmower Man movies. Sometimes they come back. I mean we are going to be in this for the long haul, folks. And once we get past that night shift crap, uh, I think it's, it's going to take on a whole other life because we're going to be examining directors. Matt, you've been wanting to talk about the Palma. You've been wanting to talk about Cronenberg. We're going to be talking about Cronenberg in this retrospective. We're going to be talking about Rob Reiner. We're going to be talking about mm-hmm. a lot of Mick Garris. Well, let, let me just say, for the record, one of the reasons why I've, I've really been pushing to do this is that we have done Brian De Palma already with Mission Impossible. They did the first one. So That's right. I've kind of got my love on at least. But this goes to show, like, the balls on Stephen King. Not to jump too far ahead, but we've referenced Maximum Overdrive enough already. So fuck it. <laughs> um, he flat out said in the, in the trailer, he flat out says, a lot of people have tried to adapt my work. But I decided that if you want something done right, you want to do it yourself. Look at the first five. Here are five of the first six directors who did his movies. Brian De Palma, Stanley Kubrick, George Romero, David Cronenberg, John Carpenter. Through the Like these are five of like the top fifty greatest genre filmmakers of the century. And Stephen King flat out said, "All of you fucking suck." I can't wait to get to that movie. I can't wait to get to a lot of these movies. Uh, a Pet Cemetery is a book that scared the fuck out of me when I first read it. That's a book I cannot wait to cover. And yes, as we go through this retrospective, I've kind of teased it. Um, shows in the past where I said, yeah, I've been doing a lot of reading for a future retrospective. This is the one I've been doing the reading for. As we speak, I am right in the midst of The Stand, the unaltered version from 1990, and I will be reading every version of that book for that fucking podcast. So I am going headfirst right into this retro. I am taking notes as I go. I mean, this is something I've been wanting to do for so long, and I'm not going to let anybody down. Like, I want to do this. I want to get into every word. And as we discuss these movies, starting with this movie tonight, King has opinions on every one of these movies that have come out with his name on them. And some of them are interesting. Some of them are head-scratching. Some of them are... 
Shut the fuck up. <laughs> and some of them are very positive. So that's going to be a fun part of this retrospective. There are so many legs to this that I, I literally don't know where to start. I am so glad we took this approach because this is just going to be so much fun to do. All right, so let's talk about the movie we're going to be talking about tonight, Carrie. I reread this book back in February, preparing for this podcast. I read it in one sitting. This is one of wow. the least amount of pages of any of his books. And this was a book I read when I was younger, and this was a book I read for college. Believe it or not, I had a college course that was horror literature and its meaning. <laughs> it was this. I had Lovely Bones I had to read. I had to read Clive Barker's story. I had to read I Am Legend. This was all for a college course. Nice. Uh, <laughs> money well spent. But yeah, this was one of the ones I had to read for that. The cover of this video box, and Adam knows I was worked at a video store for a while. Mm -hmm. It was hard not to notice. Like on the left side, you have a woman in just total bliss getting flowers. And then on the right side, you have just this look. She's covered in blood. You don't know if it's her blood. You don't know if it's anyone else's blood, at least if you didn't see any of the press materials beforehand. And that really sucked you in. Matt, what was your first introduction to this movie we're going to be talking about tonight? I was introduced to Carrie's book. When I was in probably late middle school, early high school, this was one of the books that we were assigned to read. Not first Stephen King book I was assigned to read. I talked about different seasons already. But Garrett's right. It's so funny going back and looking at a Stephen King book and going, wow, only 200 pages. It might as well be like a field guide compared to some of the shit. <laughs> <laughs> um, but when I read the book, of course, you know, you got to watch the movie. And my introduction to the movie, actually, would have been Bravo used to do scariest movie moments of all time. They did, like, a top 100 on their TV show. And they'd have different talking heads talk about the actual movies. Some of them, directors like George Romero, Rob Zombie. Then they'd have, like, the fucking Coors Light Girls. What the fuck? Am, am I going to care what they <laughs> say? But I'm pretty sure the prom scene ranked in the top ten. Or it was pretty high on that list. I'm looking at the list right now. It was number eight on that particular list, and it's on the AFI's best thrill movies. So it had an earnest reputation. And even at the age of, like, 13, 14, I was starting to really love films. So, of course, I was going to check it out. And this was before my love slash obsession with Brian De Palma. So I'm sure if I had started later in life before or after I had really watched all of De Palma's tome, I probably would have broke my own legs running to a blockbuster to go and rent this. Uh, I know the image of Carrie on the cover. The end. You've never seen it before this retrospective. I had never seen it. Wow. I had never read it, and I didn't even know much. And we're going to find that a lot as we go through these. There's going to be some I know a lot about, some that I know jack and squat. I know the famous image. Obviously, there's no way to avoid that. Parodies about it. But that is all I knew about it going into this watch. I didn't know some of the cast that shows up in it. I didn't know the reasoning. Nope, just that image of her covered in blood. Wow, the yeah. scariest I, thing I've heard this entire show. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like Gargamel right now because I'm rubbing my hands together just waiting to take my heels into this because, <laughs> my God, I, this is going to be so amazing. And I, had hoped, um, I would hope that I'd be able to get my wife to watch this with me. I knew that she'd seen it before and such. I was like, hey, I'm going to sit and watch Carrie. Do you think that maybe we could, oh, shit, she's leaving the room. <laughs> she was just a fucking nope i'm out you're on your own <laughs> she's out yep oh man so this book if you remember it matt it's formatted differently first of all some of it is, is a set of articles that he plasters throughout the course of the book then there are excerpts of a book 
written by one of the main characters of the story. That's going to be something I'm going to really talk about when we get into the actual movie itself, because Sue Snell in the book has written her own book based on the experience of what happens in this movie. And there are things that happen, and I definitely want to talk about because she actually comes off as an unreliable narrator. Is she telling the truth? Is she trying to expand on it? And then it's just a regular narrative. King took a really different approach here. And famous story, but I have to say it, this book almost didn't come to be. King was a struggling writer. He had written some things that were published in little magazines here and there, wasn't really getting anything going. He was a teacher at this time. Him and his wife and two kids, they lived in a double-wide trailer out in Maine. They had nothing when he was writing this book. He got about 50 pages in, and he looked and he said, this is bullshit. I don't know what I'm doing. He took it. He threw it away. Wow. Was done with it. Tabitha, his wife, saw it in the garbage can, picked it up, and said, you finished this book. You have something here. You just don't realize it. And King was concerned because he didn't know how to write from a female perspective. And Tabitha was like, well, I can help you with that. So he took that manuscript. He worked on it. And he was able to sell it. And then little time goes by, boom, they sell off the film rights to it. The book itself, when it was released in hardback, didn't do that well. It sold okay, mm. but when this movie was released and this fucker came out on paperback, boom, there it was. And then Stephen King was born at that point. Pretty amazing to think about. If A, this thing wasn't rescued from the trash bin, what would have happened? Mm-hmm. And B, this movie pretty much made Stephen King. If this movie wasn't a success, this movie had Oscar nominations too, by the way. Piper Laurie was nominated for an Oscar, and Sissy Spacek was nominated. So it had cred. And what if this wasn't that credible? It's interesting to think about. That's why I love doing these retrospectives. What if? All right, so the movie rights are sold. Brian De Palma. What had he done at this point, Matt? Had he done Phantom of Paradise yet? Yes, because that was 74. Okay. And at this time, his production designer... Um, I think his name is Jack Fisk, was married to Sissy Spacek. Okay. And he encouraged her to audition for Carrie. And then Fisk had to convince De Palma to let her audition and show that it wasn't just outright nepotism. Because De Palma originally wanted Betsy Slade to star as Carrie. You don't know who Betsy Slade is. She was in a little movie called Our Time. It's really her most notable role. So De Palma really wasn't looking for, quote-unquote, like, big names or anything like that. But outside of Phantom of the Paradise, I want to say the only other... Was it Sisters? He did Sisters, too. Sisters, I think Obsession was before this. Mm. Actually, no, Obsession Obsession was the same year as this. So 76 was the year for De Palma. But Sisters was 72. I think Phantom of the Paradise was 74. So we had done a couple movies. Another interesting thing about the making of this movie... De Palma and Lucas, at this point, George Lucas, they were good friends. De Palma famously wrote the opening crawl to A New Hope. So they were already helping each other out, doing what they needed to do for each other. And then time came to cast this movie. Lucas himself was casting Star Wars at that time. They had a joint audition. People don't realize how close we came to having William Cat as Luke Skywalker. There was, there was a little bit of a fight between uh, Lucas and De Palma for William Cat and Sissy Spacek was almost Princess Leia. Mm. 
And if you go back and you look at these auditions, I mean, they, um, uh, Kurt Russell showed up. Yeah. He auditioned for both of them. And Carrie Fisher was almost Carrie, which how cool would that have been? <laughs> you know, Carrie playing Carrie. And the rumor of her not wanting to do the nude scene was complete bullshit. And she even said in a brilliant quote, she said, not only would I have done it, but I was young enough where I could have pulled it off. <laughs> <laughs> so the joint audition, which, look, does William Cat regret not getting Luke Skywalker? He is in a good movie here he is in a movie that is very credited as being a very good film but man that residual stuff must have really <laughs> bit him in the ass huh? like, probably wishes he had that so yeah that's an interesting aspect of this movie as well all right i got enough of the backstory going boys we're gonna go right into the film unless you guys have anything to add let's go to school all right we're going to school we start off with a wide shot of a volleyball court and we're not sure who to look at here until a girl misses the final point of their match, and then the Palma slowly pans down, and we get our first look at the title character of the film, Carrie White, played by Oscar-nominated Sissy Spacek. Oh, what a performance this is. Matt, how do you like Sissy Spacek in this film? She does as good of a job as possible, considering she's not entirely the Carrie from the book, because she's not overweight. Yes. Uh, yeah. She's not overweight. She doesn't have zits, either. Nope. Those are big components of the book. Mm-hmm. Outside of that, I think she she's absolutely terrific. And we always talk about how actors will talk about for method, they study animals. Anthony Hopkins studied reptiles for Silence of the Lambs. Jim Carrey studied birds for Ace Ventura, of all things. <laughs> and I get the sense that Susie Spacek studied goldfish. And that's not a joke, because if you notice, the way she stares all, like, bug-eyed and yeah. almost... Not quite innocuous. It's kind of like how goldfish just will look at you and not move. So that's kind of where, where my, my mind was drawn. But outside of that, I think, kidding aside, I think she's absolutely terrific. Not much in the way of missteps in, the, in her performance or Piper Laurie's, for that matter. I think they both well deserve their Oscar nominations. For the record, I looked up who won the Oscar that year. Uh, mm. Spacek lost to Faye Dunaway for Network. Mm. And Piper Laurie lost to Beatrice Strait. For oh, wow. Who's only in that, that movie for like six fucking minutes. <laughs> yeah, we're going to get to Piper Laurie. There are things about that performance that are just hilarious to think about. One more thing before I get to Adam is Carrie was actually an algorithm of two different girls that King had met in high school. One of them actually committed suicide not long after high school was done. And another one had a religious zealot of a mother. And he just kind of put those two together. And came up with this character. Adam, sir, you're watching this for the very first time. What are you thinking about Sissy Spacek as you see her in the beginning stages of this film? From what I knew about it, I didn't know that Carrie was a mentally handicapped child. Was how I take the way she's playing it at first. And I don't mean that to sound as insensitive as it is. Not knowing how it's going to play out. The, the opening 10, 15 minutes of it, I don't know what and why Carrie acts the way she does. So I find that out later. But starting off this movie, I'm just like... Why? I literally thought, okay, I didn't know that Carrie was was mentally handicapped. I didn't know this. I was wrong. (laughs) But that's just the feeling that I get because she's so closed off. She's almost nonverbal for the first bit of it. I was confused as to what I was supposed to be getting from Carrie. Hey, before you go, Garrett, Adam's right that there are some autistic overtones. Oh, yeah. To her performance, and I want to say, I don't know how advanced we were as far as what we know about autism during the 70s. I imagine it wasn't a whole heck of a lot. Good point. We then get some male gazing in a women's locker room, because this is Brian De Palma, after all. (laughs) (laughs) Until 
this is when I literally stopped and I was like, how the hell did they get away with nudity in what's supposed to be a high school full of women? I could because they're all over seventeen. Yep. That's why. And I had and, and I had to stop and Google because I'm not gonna shit you. I felt really fucking uncomfortable really quick. Yeah. You gotta, you gotta save that for the Brian Singer directed Stephen King movie Apt People. Yeah. Apt People. Oh yeah. Wait for that. Speaking oh my of god. Parallels, but the way they also get around it is they shot this scene with all the girls wearing panties. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Play it on syndicated TV, but yet they forgot to remove. The S word that is planted later on in the movie Clear as Day. <laughs> it's a funny note about this. Did you guys see Edie McClurg? Mm-mm. Now, Edie McClurg is the woman who, she's probably most famous for being the one that Steve Martin yells at when he goes to the car rental place in Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And she was also, in, she was Mrs. Poole in The Hogan Family, yep. which is how I actually yep. knew her. God. She was on uh, Secret <laughs> of Nim, ironically. Yeah, yeah, good call. She's in this. She's got some crazy-looking glasses on. You can catch her if you're looking for her. So we see Carrie's in the shower, and she can't figure out why she's bleeding. Now, De Palma originally wanted to do the opening of the book, which is, as a little girl, we learned that in one of the offshoots of Carrie's powers, she can make rocks fall out of the sky. But De Palma didn't like the effects for it, and it got dropped in favor of this opening, which, budget be damned, I like this a hell of a lot better. I like the fact that this is how Carrie learns of her abilities, and gradually they get bigger as the movie moves along. It sets up a nice symmetry for the movie. As Carrie becomes a woman, she becomes, I guess, a monster, for lack of a better word. Yeah, I think it's the one of the many examples of what works in a book does not always translate to screen, especially mm-hmm. visual effects notwithstanding. I like how this starts off from a place of pure innocence and ignorance, on her part, because her mother has purposefully not disclosed the tribulations of motherhood. But what's great about this movie is that it's a horror movie, but it works on so many other genres. This is one of the great high school movies of all time, and that high school is absolute hell. If you aren't mm-hmm. part of the social hierarchy of the uh, the Mean Girls, this is very much the precursor to Mean Girls and a lot of other things. But mm-hmm. yeah. it's also a commentary at the time. Um, tampons were not the cheapest thing in the world to get, and other countries that were not as up-to-date, I guess, so to speak, on, on health products and general upkeep. Other schools across the world, a lot of kids couldn't afford tampons, so they just didn't outright go to school. So this is kind of breaking new ground and opening some new eyes for some other people. I'm confused as all fuck. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out it's very clear by the end but how and why is menstruation used as horror well she begins and ends covered in blood but i'm just really to be honest i'm put off because i haven't been introduced to carrie like this is how i'm introduced to her so Mm -hmm. i don't fucking know carrie other than what i'm seeing here and i'm just i don't get it i'm like okay is she supposed to be 12 now because she's just menstruating for the first time i'm not understanding the why now if i want to flip it and be like okay i'm going to take it comic booky okay she's coming into her powers because like an x-men she's going through puberty and, yes. suddenly, and suddenly she's fucking jean gray and it is kind of amazing that 
this movie kind of helms that way towards a lot of things. Um, Positively, dude, this is a superhero film, the more you look at it. I thought about that, too. This is a woman who comes into her own power. Yeah. This motherfucker stole my joke, because I was going to say, <laughs> all of, if, if Charles Xavier was her, showed up as her guidance counselor, none of this shit would have happened. <laughs> Adam, your point about not knowing, you know, menstruation and stuff. Let's remember, this came out during a time where horror films really started to depict the fact that a woman's reproductivity and their body could be inherently evil. It's evil, yeah. Rosemary's Baby was not too long before this. Uh, The Omen, give birth to the Antichrist. Mm -hmm. Um, The main possessed child in The Exorcist is a girl. So this was kind of... I don't know if yeah. he writing a trend, but this was kind of a prevalent point in horror at the time. And as it's going on, I just don't... I As of yet, first watch, only time I've seen it, I don't understand the why and the how she doesn't know it. Clearly, they don't even discuss it in the school, more or less at home. And five minutes, ten minutes after this, it all starts to become clear. When it's first happening for the first time, my mind's just spinning. But, wow, yeah, see. we suddenly go down to a Mean Girls route because everybody at the school is a fucking asshole. Yeah, and going back to your point, Adam, I think the two things that people remember about this movie, the end and the fact that she's lost over the fact that she has her period. And the fact that you didn't know that, wow, that boggles my mind. So, yeah, as Adam said, Carrie sees the blood, freaks out, and De Palma does a very good job of moving the camera along with SpaceX as she runs towards her fellow classmates who just pelt her with tampons and yell, plug it up. Like, it's just a bunch of assholes. Oh, boy. Adam, you and I, we... Um, we I never did school. this at class. No. no. <laughs> what I was going to say is bullying is such a... And we're going to see this personified when we get to the remake. But back then, if something like this happened, it, it was spread around school for a little bit, and then it just kind of ended. Like, yeah. I'll, I'll, give you, I'll give you an example. When I was in, I think it might have been fifth or sixth grade, I... Had to use the restroom really bad. I never used the restroom at school. I walked in. I'm taking a leak in this restroom, and I'm like, wow, there's no urinals here. This is weird. And I walk out, and there's like oh. a set of girls that's out there laughing their asses off. And it fucked me up for like a set of days. But you know what? I got over it. Now, people would take out their phones. It would take on a whole new meaning. We're not just going to go around school-wide. We're going to go around worldwide and post this on the Internet. So that just scares the ever-living shit out of me. And Adam, as somebody with kids... It's got to scare you, too. Um, oh, yes. So this is huge. It is as disastrous as it could be for a woman to have this happen to her. But this is a movie about what happens when you bully. And what the Palma does, and I think King does in the novel, too, so well, is do we root for her? Is the fact that she does what she does at the end supposed to be a rousing moment? Or is she a monster who needs to be destroyed? Did you guys feel that? Like, you're seeing her just, and Adam, you know how this movie's going to end. So when you see her in this just horrible situation, you mm-hmm. had to feel for her, right? I figure that the entire thing is a, ends up being a fucking revenge piece. Yeah. As much as it's, you know, classified as a horror movie, and I'll get to, you know, very little part, but the part that I do feel work is horror. Um, I'm like, okay, she's going to get hers later. You know, that it's all just going to be vengeance and revenge. It's King commenting on nature versus nurture. You know, it's the idea of, is 
this just a result of her repression, both at home and at school, or was she destined to do this all along? The very notion of a woman having this much power, is that inherently wrong, like evil? Because mm-hmm. I'm sure a lot of people would have said that at the time. Shit, a lot of people say, I mean, even now, you put a woman in power, how many would cower or be threatened? Mm-hmm. Right. The frantic scene gets even worse as Mrs. Collins, who in the book, it's actually Miss de Jordan, but that name doesn't necessarily roll off the tongue. And plus, Collins is such a badass last name, so they <laughs> decided to just say Mrs. Collins. That's like uh, she, this movie first, you son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> Played by Betty Buckley, by the way, Matt, who we covered earlier this year in our little M. Night retrospective. Uh, um <laughs> <laughs> A little bit of a better part here, but she comes in, and instead of calming the situation, she makes it worse. She slaps and carry right across the face. Mm-hmm. Different times, huh, guys? <laughs> you know, there's a, it took me back. There's a lot. There's a, I remember a major news story recently. I'm not going to timestamp this exactly because I'm sure it's frequent, about a child that got swatted at school. And as much as that's crazy, I went to a school for two or three years in middle school where they had corporal punishment. So you could be sent to the principal's office and the paddles were hung. So you knew that you could literally get paddled across the principal's desk. But this still was just like a holy shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this was right before Ingram versus Wright, where the yeah. Supreme Court actually said that cruel and unusual punishment did not apply to corporal punishment in schools. Mm. So yeah, pretty coincidental when this movie was made. Yeah. yeah. Carrie shows her first display of power in all this franticness by knocking out a light. And De Palma even uses some Hitchcock-style psycho strings to put an exclamation mark on the uh, entire scene. You say psycho-style, I say ripped off. (laughs) Well, yeah. De Palma, he did want Bernard Herrmann to score this. And Bernard Herrmann did agree to do it, but he passed away right before Taxi Driver finished, and he was not able to do this one. But De Palma gets a lot of shit. And I think rightfully so for being kind of a Hitchcock ripoff artist. You watch Dress to Kill, that is him trying to do a Hitchcock to a T. And just the fact that VCRs, everything wasn't very prevalent. You couldn't really put it face to face and look at it side by side. He got away with a lot of it, a lot of this stuff around then. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. When I watch this movie, I do think he comes into his own as a great director. But he was known as a Hitchcock ripoff artist for a long time. And stuff like this... Like, just using those, as Adam says, psycho ripoff key strings, yeah. It, it doesn't go so much for his cause, does it? <laughs> well, let me just say, as the De Palma fanboy on this retrospective, that criticism is not unwarranted by any means. Even De Palma's best movie, which in my opinion is Blowout, that is both Hitchcock and Zanini to a certain extent, because he literally stole the title Blow Up and just called it Blowout. It's photography for audio recording. So the Palma abides by the same thing Tarantino does, of good artists borrow, great artists steal. It's very divisive. I totally understand why a lot of people think the Palma is just a plagiarist, but to me, I think he has enough variety in his movies. Carrie is very different from Blowout, which is very different from Dress to Kill, which is very different from something like Raising Kane, which is fucking insane, and I want to talk about that movie yeah. at some point. Oh, yeah, um, I think if you look at his filmography, it's completely different than so many directors, especially this time, who find one thing, Scorsese, and just do the exact same fucking thing every time. You look at the Palma's filmography, and, I mean, same guy that did Carrie did Snake Eyes. I mean, shit, come on. <laughs> well, and also the Palma... 
Carrie could have been an exploitation film. Look at this opening. Mm -hmm. This very could have been just sleazy, Roger Corman-esque level of trash. But it shows what happens when you get a director who has a voice, but is working in tandem with the story it's based upon. Because we'll talk about what happens when the director clashes with the writer. <laughs> very <nervous. Yeah. laughs> Definitely. So Mrs. Collins tells the principal, Mr. Morton, who's getting his own looks in on Mrs. Collins, by the way, that uh, Carrie should yeah. go home. Of course, Morton didn't help his cause much by mispronouncing Carrie's name no less than three times while she's in the office, which causes the ashtray to come off the table. Um, even the teachers are dicks. Yeah, even, yeah. That's, that was my point. It, it's really weird. you know, When you look at this Carrie character, and we'll get to one who everybody adores, but this is somebody who they get around her. And they just turn into toxic people. There yeah. is no positive influence from this woman on anybody. She brings out the worst in everybody. When we get to another one, he brings out the best in people. Everybody likes him. But I saw the symmetry this time, and I could not stop thinking about it as I was watching this. She is just a toxic, toxic person to be around. By the way, ashtrays, great things to have in principal's offices. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about time changing. Yeah, you're not kidding. Smoking in the principal's office. <laughs> <laughs> we then get a scene I vividly remember seeing for the first time as Carrie is walking on the sidewalk and a kid yells at her, Creepy Carrie, Creepy Carrie, and then gets flipped off his bike. By the way, this kid, he's played by De Palma's nephew, and De Palma himself didn't like his vocal performance, so he took Betty Buckley and just dubbed him. So that <laughs> voice who's yelling, Creepy Carrie, that's Betty Buckley who yells at her. <laughs> Wow. Uh, straight from the book, by the way. This scene's right right out of the book. And what I like about this is we're building, right? We're seeing little hints of what she can do, and then we'll see a huge display of it later on. But here we're seeing little tiny things about what she can and can't do. Let me say that's one of the best things about the movie is the gradual showcase of her abilities. To draw comparison to Cronenberg, it's sort of like the fly. You can't start the movie with the full transformation into a monster you got to start off small, like, you know, it's in the case of the fly, it's hairs growing on his back, and he's getting acne, and then he starts puking on stuff because he can't digest food properly. <laughs> Here it's just very simple tricks. They're not innocuous, like, there's clearly cause for concern, like, she could have killed somebody with the ashtray, or God knows if that kid got thrown off his bike into traffic. There's plenty of ways that these could have gone wrong, but you're seeing that she's not really doing it to murder anybody because she could have just as easily pulled a pet cemetery and thrown that kid in front of a truck mm -hmm. yeah no I, I see the same way i think she's lashing out but not in a way of of even understanding more or less being able to control what she has going on much like puberty we didn't get a yeah we didn't get a scene not in the book as margaret white is trying to sell the gospel to sue snell's mom you know i've obviously said there are a lot of things about this movie I love. I'm not sure about this edition. I'm not sure I like this introduction to Margaret White, though I guess they wanted other interactions before Carrie and her mom interact with each other. This scene is here to show that her mother is not a shut-in. She's, you know, she's not Yoda living in a hut by herself, preaching mm. the force. And it kind of draws parallels to Carrie in that she's also toxic to be around. Like, people want nothing to fucking do with her. So I, I think it's, it's important it's here. As far as the scene itself, it's written decently. You can kind of you can kind of tell what's not scripture from the book. It's just not as good, which is weird because this is King adaptations range from adapted to a fault to it basically took the title and very little else. This is mm. one of the faithful ones they've done. 
or, or will will have done in the entire catalog. Carrie is very close to yeah. what it is in the book, so it just makes the new editions all the more noticeable. Very good point. I noticed that when I read it this time. It's it's almost like it's almost word for word, except for a couple things, which probably explains why King likes it so much. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I like it only in the sense that I understand that the mother's a religious wacko, so I start to understand where Carrie's naivete, I guess for lack of a better term, where that is coming from. However, and it's a, another problem that I have with it, so the town knows that mom's a fucking whack job. They can't stand her. They would have to extrapolate that part of the issues with Carrie is coming from the mother, but is the whole town just a town full of fucking assholes, too? <laughs> so it's fine, Um but then also, I don't know, it ends abruptly because she's just like, here's $5. And then, you know, the mother stops and it just takes it and is like, okay, I guess you're paying me off to go away. I would have rather gotten this introduction than just Carrie coming home. Yeah, if we don't see the mother outside, we would assume she never leaves that house. So from that standpoint, I think it's important to see that the community knows her and she interacts with the community. But obviously everybody here is just a fucking bag of dicks. Now, Piper Laurie has said the reason her portrayal of Margaret White is as big as it is was because she thought she was making a dark comedy uh, <laughs> in the vein of Sisters. As we said earlier, she did get another Oscar nomination for this film, for her performance. And as big as she goes, I find her to be great in this role. I just adore this performance. There are times when it is so fucking over the top. But I just find that to be hilarious that she didn't realize until she saw the film. And Travolta and Nancy Allen have said the same thing, where they didn't realize that they were making a horror film at this time. They thought they were making a straight comedy. I see very much, like to me, I'm getting Joan Crawford doing the no more. I mean, that's what I'm getting Mm -hmm. from her through this is I think she's completely pulling Mommy Dearest just with the religious stuff that we're going to see in a lot of King's work. I like her quite a bit. The further that it goes and the more she goes that way, I mean, she starts to descend into some creepiness as well, and I'm kind of going along with it. Yeah, I can picture Betty Davis stroking all, looking up from hell, just going, that bitch stole my get-up. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, she goes big, but I attribute that just to the fact she had also not made a movie in 15 years. Like, the last film she did before was The Hustler, which was also sort of a different point in her life. I imagine she might have been a stage actress at some point. I know a lot of them. She had done some Shakespeare for, like, the Hallmark Walk of Fame and things like that. So it's not off-putting that she played it big because this character is very... Not much is lost in translation. Like, she is just as over the top of the book. And that stems from King's, let's say, complicated view of religions, specifically Catholicism. Mm -hmm. So Margaret gets the call about what happened with Carrie today. And what does she do? She does what any caring mother would do. She hits her, she yells at her, and she locks her in a closet. Now, before we get to SpaceX, I have to ask, was J.K. Rowling a fan of this book? Because having watched the majority of those movies for the very first time, when we did that retro, I couldn't help but think of them when Carrie is thrown in this fucking closet. Yeah. (laughs) So you're saying that Harry's first erection got him thrown under the stairs? Go back and revisit that series, everybody. Yeah. We missed that part. Yeah, Lumos yeah. Maxima takes on a whole new meaning at the beginning <laughs> of Christmas Basketball when he's done it. <laughs> All right, so we cut to Tommy in class, who is called in to read a poem, and something is quickly established here, as I mentioned earlier. Well, nobody likes Carrie. Everybody likes Tommy. 
me and Adam would know William Cat as the greatest American hero. I think that's <laughs> basically that and House are probably the only two things I really remember William Cat from. Yep. I like him a lot in this role, even if it is a little cheesy. Yeah, I, I think he's perfectly adequate. I'm sure there were other actors who could have done just as good of a job, Kurt Russell included, but I, I think he's totally fine. I, I think the only other thing I've seen William Cat in is John Millis' movie, uh, Big Wednesday. And everyone, don't come up too quick from that deep dive into this poll. I don't want you to get the bend. <laughs> Believe it or not, I'm walking on air. <laughs> awesome. Um I think he's a good presence in this movie. And I think he, I don't know, he is a je ne sais quoi. There's just something about him that he really brings out. Maybe it's just because he's the one person at the school that's not a complete asshole. But, yeah, I was just about ready to say. You know, yeah. but he also, I don't know, I, there's a presence about him that I do like in this movie. I think he does a good job. And it, to say it could just be because he's the one contrast character. But, yeah, he's a, he's a good present. I do think that, yeah, Russell would have been good. I'm glad that the other person we're about to meet here in a moment didn't get that role. But, yeah, I think Cat does a good job. De Palma does a nice job with this scene, too, because he's, he's showing SpaceX sitting two rows right behind him, and he just lingers on this shot for a few seconds. We're seeing her just look at him and gaze at him like everybody does. You know, everybody likes Tommy. Tommy's cool. Mm-hmm. De Palma's doing a really nice job of establishing that. We cut to another gym class, and Ms. Collins seems a little mean. And it's funny seeing PJ Souls in this, by the way, Matt. Like, this woman would go on to be in Halloween, and she's in this, and she's very noticeable because she's wearing a red hat every fucking time she's on screen, <laughs> including the prom later on. Yeah. Speaking of this scene, were you reminded of Nightmare on Elm Street 2 as I was? Yeah, absolutely. Not nearly enough gay overtones, but I was thought it was heading that way. <laughs> Well, I'm sure you can fantasize about those components on your own time. (laughs) Chris is played by Nancy Allen, who would go on to be Murphy's partner in Matt's favorite series, RoboCop. And uh, she has zero redeeming qualities here. And by the way, she would also go on to bang De Palma for a number of years. Um, Mary De Palma as well. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. She plays this rather well. I like her even if I hate this fucking character. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly what it is. I, I hate that I like her. I like that I hate her. You know, I think the only movies, aside from RoboCop, that I like Nancy Allen in are fucking De Palma movies. But that this starts King, like any good writer, Tolkien has his eagles that drive me up the wall. Stephen King has mastered the sadistic bullies who would not exist in society. Every one of his bullies <laughs> crosses a line where it's like no sane person would be that evil. There's a scene later on where I think she goes a bit too far, but and it's not the big scene you're thinking of. She does it well, but God, Stephen King bullies, <laughs> that's one of my least favorite tropes in his entire canon. It makes me think, because as I was watching this, I had the same feeling, Matt, that we're going to see a lot of them in this retrospective. Greasers, right? These greasers who are bullies. Was Stephen King bullied as a teenager? I'm getting a feeling that he was, because he inserts them a lot in his work. Yeah. yeah, I don't know who traumatized King as a child. I hope and pray they're in witness protection. Yeah. The amount of money this guy has, I'm sure he could send like a missile to their house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, throughout his work, he doesn't just make bullies characters. I mean, he makes bullies villains, you know. Yes. He kind of crosses yeah. them over into that a bunch. Mrs. Collins threatens to take away their prom tickets if they don't straighten up. We then get a montage of the girls going through gym class, and Mrs. Collins is working them hard. I love what De Palma's doing with the camera here. This is a greatly shot 
little montage. There's a scene of Mrs. Collins walking around as the girls are doing sit-ups. De Palma knows what he does with a cameraman. And I said that he, he did get a lot of heat for being a Hitchcock ripoff artist, but the man knows what he's doing. He's a master at work. I, I, I seem to remember when, when I first watched this movie, I wasn't, you know, I didn't know De Palma from anything. But the more I watched this movie and the more I've seen the majority of De Palma's work, including The Untouchables, which I watched for the very first time this year, I see a lot of his tropes. I see a lot of what he does. And man, he's a master at work here. Meanwhile, Carrie is in research mode. Now, this was before the internet, obviously, and it's seen movies like this and Jaws had scenes <laughs> like this to show how information is gathered. Now, they don't do much with this, but in the book, what she's doing is she's wondering what the hell she has. She's learning to harness her powers, and we kind of see this in the remake. Kimberly Pierce does it a little bit in the remake, where we're seeing her kind of practice her powers. I don't think that information is gathered as we're seeing what, like Carrie's studying about this. Okay, what's she studying? Why is she wanting to know about this? It was serviceable enough to me that I knew where it was going. I don't think I've ever been in a card catalog that had telekinesis on a label. Yeah. <laughs> um, and for anybody watching this, yes, this is how a library used to be organized. Yep. <laughs> was giant freaking rows of index cards. Fuck, all the way when I was in high school, I still had to go through these in the library. It at least lets me know where her mind's at and where she's going. This movie's pretty brisk. I mean, we're going through a lot, but it's happening at a pretty quick clip. Yeah, so now it's an, it's about 100 minutes, so it's not like it's overly long. No, it's a short movie for what it is able to deliver. One minute for every two pages. <laughs> Even fucking Seven has a scene like this where Morgan Freeman has to go to the yeah. library and oh, get yeah. all the books. Shit, like, I wish she was at, like, New York Library, and you see this wheelchair just go by, and he slips her a business card saying, like, Xavier Institute, like, 1422. <laughs> Chris, meanwhile, hates how Mrs. Collins is overworking them, so she tries to leave, and she gets slapped for her troubles. Again, Ooh. getting slapped. She had a crack. Of course she did. But you imagine if this happened today? I mean, my God, the fucking, the papers would just be flying. So Sue runs Tommy down and asks him to take Carrie to the prom, and he agrees. Now, in the book, it's kind of implied that Tommy eventually falls for Carrie. I don't think we get that here. I think he's just kind of going along with what Sue is telling him to do. I'm not sure how I feel about that. I'm not sure if it would come off better on screen than it did on the page. But I like the fact that this is how Tommy's being played here. Is he's not doesn't really have his own agenda. He's just kind of following his girlfriend's. He's genuinely a good person. Exactly. Because I think him actually legitimately falling in love with Carrie, I think that's a step too far. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Especially since he's already taken. And it is here where we meet Adam's favorite actor, John Travolta. Uh, he's playing the character of Billy, as he and Chris are in the scene straight from American Graffiti, by the way. I think yeah. De Palma and <laughs> Lucas were friends, so I think he kind of took a little bit of this. We have Travolta being Travolta, complete with that dumb laugh, but uh, he gets what's perhaps the worst head in the world as she's trying to convince him of this master plan she has. And after a little bit of complaining, one slurp and he was in. I, um, I don't know. Hate head might be, you know. But if you can understand what the chick's saying, it's bad head. Yeah. And she's still talking. Good, good point. Yeah, good point. exactly. <laughs> good point. Don't talk with a dick in your mouth, everybody. <laughs> Words to live by, I can vouch for <laughs> There is a great moment here where Chris says that she hates Carrie White, and Billy just goes, who? <laughs> I like Travolta in this. Adam, I know you kind of have an anti-Travolta bias. How do you feel about his character of Billy in this? I like Travolta in a lot of things. The back and forth in the car goes on to me way too long, but 
I think it's fine. It's amazing to me that this is his debut because it seems like he's comfortable in in front of the lens. So uh, yeah, I think Travolta actually does a does a pretty good job. He's pretty much what you know a, a dick version of who he is on Welcome Back Carter. But yeah, to be fair, he was on Welcome Back Carter at this time. Yeah, and uh, in fact, he went directly from that set to this audition. And another funny note, they actually wanted him, since he had a number one hit on the charts, they wanted him to do the song that plays over the end credits. But then they realized that this asshole who's been tormenting Carrie for 90 minutes would not be a good person to uh, to write a love song to Carrie White. The funniest detail in this scene is when the cop is driving alongside them. (laughs) And Billy clearly takes a swig of beer. There's no way you could pass that off as anything else. And the cop doesn't notice it. I think these cops are as brain dead as the parents are in this society that bully is okay. Like That's one of my favorite details in this entire movie. That is crazy. Or doesn't care enough. It was the 70s. So Tommy does his due diligence and asks Carrie to the prom. Every single interaction with Carrie, again, is just full of awkwardness. And SpaceX plays that very well. Matt, I'm thinking about what you said about her kind of looking like a goldfish in some of these scenes where she gets all wide-eyed. And this awkwardness is just perfect. And it should be said, she was no teenager when they made this movie. She was 26 years old. But she plays this so well that she just seems like she's that age. Mm. Yeah, it's the Grease principle, speaking of Travolta. Well, shoot, the movie she would do just a couple years after this, Coal Miner's Daughter, the first half of that movie, oh, she's, yeah. what, supposed to be 16, I think. Yeah, that's true. Meanwhile, Mrs. Collins is in comforting mode as she tells Carrie to be happy, and she was asked to the prom, and she should just go ahead and go with him. Mrs. Collins is an interesting character to me. I, you know, I used to look at her as the mother figure that Carrie never had, but now I see her as somebody who was just trying to mold her like clay into some form of an ideal woman with a heart that is in the wrong place. Did you guys get that read on this character at all? I definitely get a mother figure from all Mrs. Collins is, so that works. <laughs> That's a little love for your mom. Thanks. I, I'll be sure to tell her. I, I do think she's the one that has a little bit of, I'm not empathy, but at least sympathy towards her. And we see that, you know, a little bit later on. So she's one of the few that's not utterly shitty to carry throughout the entire film. At least not to her face. Mm. Tommy makes his way to Carrie's house and remains persistent until Carrie succumbs to his charms and says yes. We then cut to the beginning of Chris's plan as Billy goes to slaughter a pig. Mm. This scene is mostly played for laughs, and I think I would have probably liked a darker tone to it. Because they are going to slaughter a goddamn pig. What do you guys think about this? Yeah, this is the scene I I mentioned earlier where Nancy Allen's acting goes too far. She looks like she's about to soak her fucking panties. (laughs) Wow. She's getting off on when he's just like, oh, do it again. It's over the top in an unironic sense. But isn't that De Palma being the, the, the pervy De Palma that he was back then? I, I kind of get that feeling. Yeah, although it's not it's not as creepy because he wasn't married to her yet. That's true. You know, when it, like the rest of it, I'm just like, eh, ho-hum, going through it. I can see where it's going, and it's taken, I mean, I was just complimented how quick the movie's going along, but some things like this seem to take longer than they need to. However, when he swings that sledgehammer, it gave me an oh shit moment because yeah. it was, oh shit. Maybe it's the yeah. abuse towards animals, but it just, I don't know, it, it was visceral. Yeah, he was getting off on doing it, too, yeah. which was just really yeah. weird. We cut to Carrie and Margaret having dinner, where Carrie confesses that she was asked to the prom, and she accepted. And Margaret is once again on a tear, and De Palma steals more psycho strings to insert here, as Carrie says that she's going and her mom cannot stop her. I'm liking how Spacek and Piper Laurie are playing off each other. These two are just... They're magic when they're on screen together. I agree. The one thing I got to is when she says, you know, I was invited and 
or, you know, ask the prom. And Piper Laurie, you know, does the prom. At that moment, thunder and lightning crash. Yeah. And I was just like, mm-hmm. oh, my yeah. problem is from the moment she was asked, Carrie seems to almost be a different person than we got the first half of the movie. She's suddenly extremely much more comfortable in her own skin. And I don't know if that's fully earned at this point for me. So it's just like, okay, she's changing pretty dramatically quickly. It happens not only after she accepts, but it happens after Mrs. Collins has to talk with her. And I think that's what kind of pushes her to try to meld in. And the thing that I noticed while watching it this time for this review is when she plays by these people's rules, they like her. So she is doing this and she's doing it willingly because she knows that this is what will get her accepted. Yeah, it's just Um, such a departure from that Carrie we had in the first, the opening 10 minutes of the movie and this Carrie aren't the same person to me. Fair enough. I get that. My only critique is I wish she pushed back a little more on Tommy when he comes to her. She's like, why are you this now? And she does that later on at the prom, but that's too little too late, especially because he keeps giving her like circle jerk answers where it's like because i asked you to i'm mm-hmm. like that's not a good enough answer dumbass <laughs> but yeah. it's tommy everybody succumbs yeah. to tommy i really love spacey's line where you're not doing this you're not doing that she almost just like puts her foot down just like i'm going mama yeah and it was just a oh fuck things have changed so while carrie's making herself up tommy's out renting a tuxedo and the walla guitar was a little off but <laughs> what can you do I do love the way De Palma's cutting from Carrie to him, both getting ready at the same time with Tommy's crew getting the speed up treatment, which that was a weird moment where he's like moving their lips faster. Mm-hmm. I guess he just wanted to speed up the scene. So he's, he's listening to people like Adam who are like, yeah, parts <laughs> like this like really drag. So he just speeds up, the, speeds up the film a little bit. I do like the scene, if only to see these doofuses just have fun right before hell breaks loose, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's what you it's. I mean, it's still a high school school movie. Yeah. We didn't get the speech from this movie that most people know when Carrie gets the speech from Piper Laurie about being able to see her dirty pillows. And this, of course, results in a massive fight where Carrie once again displays her power and makes her way out. By the way, this is word for word from the book. So, again, they are not deviating at all from those pages. But you know what? You get two actors like this who can play this off. It, it comes off very well. Yeah. So... Guys, we're almost an hour in, and we are at the prom. Adam, are you still interested in the film at this point? I mean, you know what's coming, but is the fact that you know what's going to happen making it hard for you to stick this one through, or are you really going along with the moments with Carrie here? It's tough because I'm, I've am i been wondering what's going to lead us here. Am I going to care enough to get here? I'm surprised that we're at the prom with this much time left because as far as I assumed, great, we get to the prom blood and blow shit up and we're done and it's not exactly that and i was shocked by that because we got here and i did check a timer because i wanted to know and i was like damn i still got 45 minutes left of this thing Mm -hmm. so when i noticed that i was intrigued as to how this would play i knew that this had to be the showcase scene of the movie and that's why there's so much time devoted to it so it didn't take me for any element of surprise but i was wondering because I haven't seen this movie in a, in a considerable amount of time, how much of this would hold up? Because as much as I love the Palma, some of his movies age a lot better than other ones. 
So Carrie's at the prom, and here she is getting the attention she didn't have before. Everyone's coming up and telling her how pretty she looks. Adam, is this what you're talking about, where she's just, your head's kind of spinning because at one point she is the ugly duckling, and now she's kind of turned herself around? Yeah, and I think it's because it's just of how quick it was. I mean, it's been, what, less than a week or about a week? Yeah. And to me, it's just a rapid go. I mean, the people, you know, the mean girls complimenting and doing that, I get because they're setting her up. But mm-hmm. everybody else doing it, it, it just it rings hollow to me. Okay. And I don't I don't hate it. I'm just like, eh, it's not the same girl that we started with. And she's not. She's not the same girl we started with. And maybe that's the important thing to realize. So she gets a talking to by Mrs. Collins, who tells her to enjoy her prom, as Tommy jokingly tells Carrie to not to hug any guys like that. <laughs> I thought this interaction between these two was really nice. You know, at this point, everyone knows what's coming up, but De Palma is once again showing—he's showing just a master class on how to build suspense. There's a rotating set of red and green lights always in our faces, and this dance scene with Tommy and Carrie, where he's rotating the camera around them on the floor. Yeah, it is dizzying, <laughs> but it really does show her enjoying herself. One of the reasons why I think that Bad News Bears is a damn near perfect movie is because every time Kelly slides home, I think there's a chance he'll be safe. Because I want that team to succeed. Here, De Palma and even King, they've both done a really nice job of making us care for Carrie. And I I go through this final half hour or so hoping that blood doesn't come tuffling on her. But before we get there, we get this dancing scene between Carrie and Tommy, and that shows a lot of bliss. Did you guys get that feeling while watching this? Were you guys happy for her at this point? No, because it, it, it's perpetual uneasiness on De Palma's part. Because if you notice, not only is there red and green strobe lights, the camera mm-hmm. constantly spins around them as they're dancing. So I think it's supposed to be disorienting. I can't say I'm happy for her because I know what's coming, even on first read. It's one of those things where it's like everyone knows what happens. It's not a state secret anymore, unfortunately. I could go with it, and I was happy to see the smile on her face. I mean, she's uh-huh. she she is happy, and I was happy for her. Speaking of a directing standpoint, though, the lighting and stars rig that they had right above them while they're close and tight, that shit varied from like two inches above their head to top of the ceiling, and it kept throwing me off. I kept waiting <laughs> I kept waiting for those little metal stars to bounce off Tommy's quaff. I find these scenes between Tommy and Carrie sweet. They have a great chemistry, and what I'm seeing is the more Carrie, again, comes out of her shell, I feel the more she's playing by the rules of the people who have been pelting her with insults and tampons her whole life, the more she's accepted. You know what I am wondering as I'm doing this is I'm like, fuck, is Tommy going to screw her over too? I'm actually a little tense going, are we going to find out that he's a part of this ruse? And I think it's kind of important that he's not. That's a great point. You know, and I was going to get to that later. But what exactly are Tommy's motivations here? I mentioned that she was trying to please Sue, but is that his only motivation? I think he's swayed by the pussy. With his girlfriend, oh, right. I think Been that's there. the best. But when Adam was talking about like, is she in on it? Is he in on it? I was expecting to put a wrestling term like you expect Tommy to like swerve. And, <laughs> oh, it's me, Carrie. It was me all along. So they start getting the stage ready for the king and queen ceremony, and I like this decision they make as opposed to the book. In the book, the girls convince everybody in the school to vote for Carrie and Tommy, and that's how they win. Here, they kind of seal their own fate by voting for each other. I like that twist a little more. So we move the camera up and see the buckets. And if we didn't know how this movie was going to end coming in already, you definitely do now. So Tommy and Carrie, they're announced as the winners. And there are a set of sweet moments as they are on stage. And Carrie does have her moment. 
and man is the palma building this tension. We have some Bernard Herman type music as the bucket is pulled on. But before that, we're seeing Nancy Allen's lips as she's getting ready to pull this thing down and everybody's clapping and De Palma slows the film down. This is just great tension. It's discovered and somebody makes a, you know, tries to get it, but is pulled back. It's almost uncovered. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, De Palma is a master of suspense. I'm not going to call him the master of suspense, but there's a reason why 40, God, 45 years later, This is still one of the most talked about sequences in any horror movie. De Palma does such a good job of not only music cues, but also just a lack of sound as the cord is pulled, the buckets come down, and once the blood comes down, we have almost no sound, and all we're hearing is the bucket in the background. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just superb, superb filmmaking. I guessed. I knew it was coming. Yep, knew it was coming. I've been up and down with this movie. I still audibly fucking gasped out loud. So the blood comes down, as does the bucket, knocking out Tommy. Or in the book, it pretty much kills him. <laughs> it, it does kill him in the book. And it is at this point that Carrie loses her senses, and we get a weird kaleidoscope set of shots where she even sees Mrs. Collins laughing. Is she seeing reality here? I'm going to assume not. I mm-hmm. don't think Mrs. Collins would be laughing. In fact, De Palma did say in interviews later, that's just us seeing her thoughts and seeing what she sees, not necessarily what's necessarily going on. Waiting for the Dark Phoenix type shit. <laughs> Bring it back to X-Men. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, to me, it's clear that the overlapping and things like that, I'm in a kaleidoscope view, a kaleidoscope takes a few different things and it magnifies it. So that's everything you see. So, yeah, Mm -hmm. she's focused on those few that are doing it or the many that are doing it, but not everybody. That's all Carrie sees is, you know, they're all going to laugh at you. So she's upset Mm -hmm. at the school. She's probably fucking losing it because mama was right. And what happens is fucking glorious. Yeah, this is when the carnage begins, and I feel this is when De Palma shines. The music gets tense. Spacek does a very good job of acting with her eyes. Her eyes just bug out of her head, Mm -hmm. and we fear for those in this gym. But I have to ask the question, again, given this carnage, which is way more in the book, because in the book she takes down the entire city. Here it's just the gym. Yeah, and here it's just a gym because they only had $2 million to work with. Don't worry, Adam. You'll be seeing that in future incarnations. Uh, (laughs) I've seen this two other times. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Again, I want to ask, like I asked in the beginning of this, is she sympathetic? Are we supposed to be rooting for her going, yeah, as she's taking these people out? Or are we supposed to be like, shit, they done fucked up and she's going to fuck them up? I'm kind of both ways. I'm like, oh, shit, oh, shit, oh, shit. And then, you know, depending on who's getting what, kind of cheer along with her. I think the only one where I went, oh, damn, was Miss Collins. Yeah, you know, that's a brutal which, way to go. When she has her, yeah, that's the thing. It's it's one of the most vicious. It lingers a little bit longer, and then it kind of, like, kicks in, you know, and has an extra little step on it. But on everything else, the way the camera is whipping back and forth, the color, the split screen. Yeah, split screen, yeah. Um, everything on it. It's an action scene. It's a horror scene. It's a revenge moment come to life. I mean, holy shit. I mean, for something that, I mean, one, can't believe they got away with what they did for the money that they did. I can't imagine what it takes. I mean, I'd love to see just a documentary on this scene alone, but wow, it delivers. This is also, you know, Gary, you mentioned De Palma coming into his own. This is one of the best utilizations. And he's done this a lot of the split screen 
technique because he's purposely doing this to show all the chaos that's happening. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think it's great. This is all about making the most of your resources. He's a very resourceful filmmaker. Well, he's not trying to be Hitchcock. But yeah, this is everything it's been built up to be. I, I don't know if you're going to elicit 100% sympathy, but it begs the question of should you be more scared of her at this point than sympathetic? Let me tell you this. When the carnage happens, the buckets are down, and everything goes up in flames behind her, and she's walking down those steps, I fucking fear her. Like, mm-hmm. if I saw that coming down as slow as she moves, it gives me chills every single time I see it because she is just a picture of vengeance in that mode. And that's what Sissy, Sissy Spacek does so well in this movie, is you look at her and you know exactly what's going on, and these people are fucked. I have that image as my Facebook background picture because it's such a telling image of where they have pushed this girl to. And Stephen King had, when it comes to bullying, let's face it, we're in a modern time right now. Bullying's not letting up. It's getting even worse than before. So this was 1974 that he wrote this book initially. And he had his finger on the pulse even back then. And how many of us wanted to not necessarily elicit carnage, but get back at the bullies who bullied us? And that's exactly what she's doing here to a more extreme extent. And if I were a bully at this point and I had seen this, I'd be like, um, I think I'm going to leave those people alone now. (laughs) (laughs) So Carrie makes her way out of the school and she sends the car containing Billy and Chris tumbling down the street. And she then makes her way to her house. Matt, that just, came to mind when we did Nightmare on Street 4 and Freddy stopped that red truck. (laughs) (laughs) She is still soaked in blood, and according to an article I read, not sure if this is true or not, but Spacek actually lived in these tattered clothes and dry corn syrup for three straight days. Talk about continuity, huh? I read that too. She didn't think they'd be able to make it match. She was willing to, yeah. Unbelievable. What I like about this is she's deciding to take a bath because she looks down. She's like, shit, I'm fucking dirty. She's not even in her own way right now. Like her head's not even on straight. Mm -hmm. And she's cleaning the blood off her with tears rolling down her eyes. But then her mom approaches, telling her about when Carrie was conceived and then embracing her, saying that they'll pray together. But Margaret pulls out a knife and stabs Carrie in the back. Fuck. Holy shit. Never saw it coming. Really? I never saw it coming. One, I did not know that there was anything after the school. I assume this movie ended with her walking out of the school and painted black. That's, you know. Oh, I can't wait to get to a scene in a little bit then. My God, you didn't Uh, even know about that scene. Nope. Wow. Nope. All right. So 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 you're seeing her with her mom. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, even when her mom was cutting the vegetables earlier when she was at the prom, you didn't have any inclinations that this was going to happen. Nope. Just didn't think about it. Especially this whole time we're at the school. Had no... Because what movie ends past this? You wouldn't do it nowadays. It uh, works for the. It works for this movie. It works for this movie. Well, you you know what what movie goes on twenty minutes after a Pitch Perfect ending? That's like ninety five percent of Spielberg's career. <laughs> oh, I knew I shouldn't have gone to that. Yet. Fucker All right. can't make a movie to save his life. <laughs> like Stephen King right. books, he can't write the greatest. So yeah, when mom, when mom pulls out that knife, and I mean, you, the only thing I do, and I resent when this shit gets done in fucking movies, is you show it to me two seconds before you use it, because you literally just spoiled it. You amped me up, but don't do that. But it still just hit me so much that this fucking 
mother was, you know, going to kill her daughter after all of this was just, oh, couldn't fucking believe it. I can't top what Adam just said. I kind of wish I went first. Fuck. Um, <laughs> I'm more intrigued by hearing his reactions, especially because yeah. not knowing what happens at the real end of this movie. I'm yes. To hear about that. But it's difficult to distance myself because I, I knew this was coming, having read the book. But this is some biblical stuff, you know. The mother kills the daughter at the behest of a higher power. Crazy. Mm-hmm. crazy. It's not out of the realm of possibility, but again, it's king. As I saying that zealots don't know how to personalize to differentiate between Satan and their own children. Well, it should be said that this was different in the book. In the book, she, what she does is she makes her mother's heart stop. She just pretty much just looks at her chest and the heart stops. Very superhero-esque, by the way. Wow. That's how she kills her. Here, this is very De Palma because this chick is dying and she's in an almost orgasmic trance as she's dying. God damn it. This is, you took what I fucking wrote. Why does mom, yeah. why is mom having an orgasm as she dies? Because <laughs> she doesn't realize what movie she's in. <laughs> I think this is the one time in this movie that I feel De Palma kind of oversteps his bounds. I like it better in the book, but that's not as sensational. That's not a movie type ending. So he's got to go big. He went big. This is very memorable. You know, she is crucified just like a cross. And by the way, that statue they show with those eyes, that gave me nightmares when I saw this as a kid. Like, I I think I was 10, 11 years old when I first saw this. And that fucking doll that they have there with the eyes that looks almost exactly like Margaret is just terrifying. What I love about the way she's killed and she's skewered is every one of those blades in her is just like that Christ statue that was in that closet she was thrown in. That it mirrors that. This is the image you showed your daughter, and this is how you're going to die. That symmetry just fits. So the house comes tumbling down, uh, very poltergeist style, I must say. We cut to Sue's mom talking on the phone about how they're going to be getting away. And then the other famous scene of this movie, which Adam had no idea about. Nope. Matt, you and I, we said this was pretty much ripped off by Friday the 13th when we did that retrospective and countless other slasher films. Sue kneels to drop flowers at Carrie's grave, and there is Carrie to pull her under. And then Sue wakes up, and my God, this scene still gets me. But before I get to me and Matt, Adam, sir, you had no idea this was coming. Tell me what happened as you were watching. You jumped. Literally fucking jumped off the couch. Wow. Um, awesome. I mean, wasn't completely understanding because it's a little, what is this area with the rubble and the, you know, as you said, you know, you're missing a little bit there to explain that, but okay, she's laying something to motherfucker there's the hand that's just like, the way that it's done is pitch perfect. Absolutely pitch perfect. I disagree fucking 10 seconds after that, that we end this movie on the other girl because I, that felt weird to me. With her waking up, I'm like, why are we ending the movie on one of the superfluous characters? But holy shit, that jump scare. Fuck. Yep. That's the way to do a jump scare. I mean, me and Matt have complained countless times about jump scares done poorly. This is the perfect way. Perfect. And this is a movie that has not had jump scares in it. So, oh. It earns this. So, a lot of people have said this jump scare is unnecessary. I would argue against that, and I'll I'll tell you why. I think the, the scene is important because it demonstrates that the trauma that all these events caused is not going to go away anytime soon. It's a very core component of what King was trying to say is that, you know, the ramifications of bullying and the consequences occur long after it actually stops. So I think the scene is needed to really punctuate the actual message of the movie. 
So do you think it's a well-done jump scare, or is this one of those jump scares you don't like? Oh, God, it fucked me up first time I saw it. Like, it was <laughs> – I didn't quite jump off my couch, but it was one of those things where it's like I did not see that coming. Funny note about this scene. When King went and saw this for the first time, he saw it on a double bill with a movie called Sparkle, which, if you've seen <laughs> Sparkle, is a uh, – it's a different movie than Carrie. So he saw it with a predominantly black audience. And he wasn't sure how this movie was going to come off. He's seeing his work adapted to the screen. He knows that De Palma's doing this, but he's like, how is this going to happen? How are people going to respond to this? And apparently when Carrie, and by the way, that is Sissy Spacek's actual hand. She insisted on being the one who grabs the hand from underneath that rubble. Mm -hmm. So that is actually Sissy Spacek herself. When she reaches her hand up and grabs Sue, this black woman next to him stands up and says, oh, she's never going to be right. <laughs> and King knew right after that, he turned to Tabitha and he said, this is going to be huge. He knew it would work right after that. So, and King and King and, um, well, we'll talk about how King has responded to this movie after we get to our ratings. But yeah, that's the end of Carrie 1976 boys on a scale of one to 10. What do we give Carrie Matt, sir? You go ahead and go. This was one of the ones when we were planning it conceptually, I was the most nervous about revisiting. Because you would think three remakes or two remakes and a sequel would make you think that they really didn't get it right the first time on the surface. I think it's completely wrong because this is not only one of the better adaptations in the King Pantheon, I think it's actually one of the best. Coming out of the gate hot, I, I think it couldn't have gone any better, if you ask me. Um, I, I still think there's some aesthetic stuff that just doesn't hold up well just because it was made in the 70s. And I said one or two trivial things. But all in all, I still think this is about as good as you're going to get. And it's a great starting off point for both newcomers and people who may not have seen this in a long time. It's all about the director. I, I always talked about how De Palma was the guy to do this, and he definitely proved it. So, as far as my score goes, I'm going to go pretty darn high, because I don't have a whole lot of complaints, and I'm going to be doing all these retrospectives kind of weighing in, like, in comparison to the book. I think this is on par with the book. I'm not going to say it's better, but I'm going to go very strong 8 on 10 on this. I think it's an extremely well-made movie and well-performed. 8 on 10 from Goudreau. Adam, sir, first-time watch. Can you go higher than an 8? Can I go higher than an eight? Yes. Am I going to go higher than an eight? No. <laughs> Spoiler. I didn't know what I was going to make of this movie when we were going to get down to it. Knowing that I'm not huge on King, but knowing he's got not only such a huge fan base, but he's got some of the biggest known hits, some marquees, just some moments, some scenes that stand for decades made it a little daunting because I'm not going to go in uh, I'm not going to go in anticipatory huge but I'm not going to keep my arms as crossed as maybe I have been in the past either so I'm open-minded as I can be but still acknowledging that you know am I a huge fan uh, not particularly Carrie delivers for the most part much more than than I assumed it was going to as I said, I don't care a lot for the first half of this movie, and that may be my own way of reading it. It's hard to enjoy the first half. It's a lot of setup. It's a lot of dry setup. The performances from Spacek and from 
Piper Laurie are absolutely fantastic. There is no argument there whatsoever. It's really the second half of the movie that validates the first half. And so while it improves it, I'm not going to give the first half a pass for me. But when we get to the prom, when Carrie's a different person, and then that all gets ripped away from her, fuck, I feel for Carrie. Seeing her transformation gets earned in that moment. And the way De Palma shoots it, the music, the split, the color, the editing choices that he makes is pretty fucking superb. So I love the second half of this movie. I'm not huge on the first half of this movie, but I need it to enjoy the second half as much as I do. So I hope that makes sense in the way that I put it that way. But I enjoy it more than I thought I would, and I probably enjoy it more than I'm even making it sound, but I'm going to nitpick these because I'm going to nitpick them. And I enjoy the hell out of discussing it with you two who have seen it more and could break things down to me. So I'm a strong seven on Carrie. Will I see it again? Yeah, I probably will. I think I'm going to be pretty pissed about watching these other carries because i got a feeling they're not going to match this. But maybe they'll flesh out some other stuff as well. But I'm really glad I got to see it. I think it's a good start to what we have going on. It makes me worried uh, the pace that it's going to keep. Let me tell you something. Once we get to Night Shift next year, you'll be wishing for that first half of Carrie again. Uh, that'll be the fucking <laughs> godfather to you uh, when we get to that part. You know, I am... Um, I am more in line with Matt on this. I also was nervous coming in, although I remember the performances being grand. And like I said at the beginning of this podcast, if this was not good, if this was not a hit, if this did not linger, this would have marked the end. Probably the mark the end. King would have still been a writer. He would have been a Peter Straub, though, even like a Dean Koontz. He would have put out some books, but he wouldn't have really been that well known. This thing was known. This thing gathered Oscar nominations. This thing was made by a masterclass filmmaker. And yes, I came in not expecting much from De Palma. And he takes this high school horror film and just turns it into something that, yeah, there are moments. I, I don't like the scene when they're getting when they're getting ready for the prom. I know it's a moment of levity for these characters, but it's way too cheesy, even for a 70s film. And there are parts that do date it. Yet, I am with Carrie every step of the way. I am glad for the things that were omitted. And once we get to some of these other iterations of Carrie, much like Kubrick does with The Shining, the more of that extra supernatural stuff that you leave out, the better it is. You imply. You don't put these out there. Some things look better on the page. And I'm glad for that omission. I think every single character in this is worth taking a look at, even if they are not likable characters. Chris is irredeemable. She is just a nasty bitch, and Nancy Allen plays that very well. I also like Amy Irving in this. You know, we haven't mentioned her name this entire podcast, but she was Sue, and she doesn't have a huge part, but she is a springboard for the plot, and I like the scenes with her and William Cat. William Cat as Tommy, tremendous. At the end, when that blood falls and he's yelling, I'm like, fuck, I feel what he's feeling. Like, he's like, you guys fucked all this up. So, yeah, I'm more in line with Matt here. I want to go a half point higher. I'll go 8.5. I think this movie is just a master class in filmmaking. And if you want to see how to build tension, even though we know how it ends, if you've seen that cover of the box, if this wasn't as iconic as it is, if you've seen the remake before you watch this one, I assure you, you're still going to be left in suspense by the end of this movie. So 8.5 out of me. Boys, that marks the first part of our Stephen King retrospective. We only have about 98 more to go. Uh, Bond is going to feel like a cakewalk. Yeah. (laughs) Hey, maybe by the time we're done with this, we'll be reviewing a new Bond film. 
Uh, take that long for this final we'll one to come out. We'll be out of misery by the time that fucking movie comes out. <laughs> All right. Well, speaking of misery, I'm glad we haven't been in misery this uh, entire film. I'm glad we got off to a great start. I'm glad that we have springboarded this huge project that Matt and I have been aching to do for years off on the right foot. And Adam, that has a lot to do with you, sir. Thank you for bringing a new perspective. And my God, I can't wait to watch the majority of these and get your thoughts on them because you are bringing a whole new perspective than I was even expecting when I asked you to be on this podcast. Cannot wait for some of the fights I know are coming. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we have some coming up very soon. But first, we got to get through The Rage Carry 2. Now, Matt and I have an interesting history with The Rage Carry 2. We will talk about that history next week. That movie is pretty much the reason why I decided to keep Matt on this podcast and keep him as a regular partner. Details with that coming next week. But... Adam, what are you expecting next week when we do the Rage Carry 2? Did you even see this? Did you... I'm assuming you haven't since you didn't even, you didn't even see the first one. Oh, no. I saw this in a... Thi- no, I fucking have seen that movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, what am I, the fucker that goes into Endgame without seeing the rest of the Marvel movies? You're <laughs> playing <laughs> You know what? I knew that it came out, and that was about it. I figured it was the type of money grab that probably pissed a lot of people off. I I have a figure that is probably like a spec script that got reworked, if I was to guess. But, no, I know nothing about it. I've seen the trailers. I remember seeing the poster. So, a little, I know a little bit more than I do about this one. But, no, nothing wow, at all. That's I got, ridiculous. I got no Get way. off this podcast. If you know more about that one than you do <laughs> this 1976. I, I, got, I got no expectation other than I don't know. It looked like a straight-to-video movie that made it to theaters, so I don't have a lot of hope. Let me give you a little bit of a uh, perspective on this. I saw this with Pete in theaters. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> yeah. Does he want to come on and do my role? Next time? <laughs> I don't know. I'm thinking about putting Laura on here. Uh, <laughs> Matt, without getting into our history, because we do have a history with this film, what were you expecting when you heard about The Rage Carry 2 before you watched it for the very first time? Well, I remember being six years old and reading Fangoria Magazine. <laughs> there you go. Dick. Uh, <laughs> I, I think really, I, I saw this movie largely in part of the history, which you will divulge next week. But, but yeah, I saw this movie largely because of that history, because it's technically not based on a King book. So I didn't feel as compelled to check it out as like the quote unquote true adaptations, if that makes any sense. And uh, like I said, I saw this in theaters, and I'll give my opinion on this film next week. But boys, I had a blast going through this movie with you guys. It's going to be a long journey, but if I were going to take this journey with anyone, it'd be with you too. So thank you for joining me on this. Be sure to check out our Patreon. As we speak, there is a happy hour going on. If you want to be a part of that happy hour, please join our Patreon, www.patreon slash binge media. A lot of fun stuff on there, early, full binge, everything you can ask for for only five bucks, while every other site is charging way more for way less. These guys go out a lot, and I'm excited to be a part of the Patreon because I actually just had a commentary released on Patreon, so I'm stoked. All right, until next week when we discuss the Rage Carry 2, I can hear your dirty podcast. Thanks, gentlemen. Why didn't you tell me, Mama? The Binge Aftertaste is produced by Garrett and Matt. <laughs> the boy!
just a test that will let me know how to help you better. You're wasting your time. Just answer the statements, true or false, okay? Edited by Garrett. Don't get all pissy. I'm only trying to be nice. You don't give a shit about Carrie White. And everybody knows it. You're with me on this, right? Voice narration done by Adam. They're really good. We wouldn't give you a hard time if we didn't like you. We could have had them by the balls. I can see your dirty pillows. I like you. I've read everything we've co- we're covering at least once. Mm-hmm. <laughs> covering eh, bad book humor. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're going. They're all gonna laugh at you. I am so glad we took this approach because this is just going to be so much fun to do. All right. Um, anything else on King before I go on to Carrie, guys? Do you guys have anything else on him or no? I'm good. I'm well, ready. Yeah. Let's, let's. I could. We could be here all night. Um, I know, I know. Yeah. That's why we, we could preface. We could do a show just to preface what we got. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Lord knows this is going to be enough podcast as it is. All right, so let's talk about the movie we're going to be talking about tonight. Carrie. They're all going to laugh at you. But the more I watch this movie, and the more I've seen the majority of De Palma's work, including The Untouchables, which I watched for the very first time this year, I see a lot of his tropes. I see a lot of what he does, and man, he's a master at work here. Still can't believe you've never seen The Untouchables up until this point, but that's a conversation yeah. for the. <laughs> and we will do a Brian De Palma retrospective. So we, I guess he still fun. hasn't seen it. We, we could do just his thrillers, <laughs> like we could do yeah. just his, his like, quote unquote Hitchcock thrillers. But uh, by the time we're done with this, like. Who knows? We'll all be dead or something. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes dead is better. Oh, nice. That's two great well, references well, you have, sir. He's stealing my shit. Like, I should just log off. <laughs> They're all going to laugh at you. So the house comes tumbling down, uh, very poltergeist style, I must say. And we see a very odd, though, I already mentioned the doll. So I'm not going to talk about that again. All right. They're all going to laugh at you. You've been listening to the Binge Media Podcast Network at BingeMedia.net. Support the show by donating on Patreon at Patreon.com slash BingeMedia. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And don't forget... Shut up. I'm wasted. <laughs>